Okay, we're starting here on the top of Samachem and Aleph. The Gemara is continuing to discuss the Mishnah from the previous Amud, which is that a woman is allowed to go out, but Moch Shibozna. She's allowed to go out with cotton in her ears. Tani Rami Barcheskel, who Shikashur Bozna. That's only if it's tied to her ear. Because then we don't worry about it coming out and her carrying it because it's affixed, it's in place. Then we have the next one was Shibomoch Shibzandala. She can go out with cotton in her shoe, in her sandal. Tani Rami Barcheskel, the same qualification that he requires it, Vahusha Kashur Lab Sandala. As as long as it's tied to her shoe. Then Ubomoch Shitkinala Lenidata. Now we said the last thing was the cotton that she uses for her menstruation. Sava Rami Barchamala Memar, Vahusha Kashur Lab Ben Yerchotel. So he wants to suggest that it have the same qualification that we have by the other two, which is Moch Shibazna and Moch Shibzandala, that we require that it be tied. So the same thing should be over here with the cotton for her menstruation, that it also have to be tied around her leg. Amarava, Afopishena Kashurla. Over here we do not have that qualification. Kevin de Ma'is, Lo Atia Since if it really is working, if it's absorbing the Damnida, it's going to be disgusting. And if it falls out, she's not going to pick it up. She's just going to leave it there. So we don't worry about her bringing it back because it's not something that anybody would pick up. Not sure about the other two either, whether the people would pick them up. But this for sure, that it is ma'us, and therefore nobody would bring it. Our assumption now is she doesn't require a string around her to tie it down because if it fell out, she wouldn't pick it up. But what happens if it actually has a holder to it, a handle on it? So it's made to be picked up. And when it's picked up, it also will not dirty her or be ma'us because of the handle that's there. Samalei mutar. That is not problematic at all. You can do this. Because even with the beit yad, it's still considered to be ma'us. It's the equivalent of a tampon that a woman can go out with, even though it has somewhere to hold it, and to remove it, that is still considered to be ma'us, and we don't worry about her carrying it around in the Rishuta Rabim. Itmar Nami, have a similar Amoraic statement, which is, Amar Nachum Barosha Mutar. Make a handle for it, it's Mutar. Now the Gemara jumps and goes back to the cotton in the ears, and tells us that Rabbi Yochanan, Nafik Behu the Beit Midrasha. He went out with cotton in his ears to go out to the Beit Midrash. But his peers, argue with him and say that he should be doing this. Rabbi Yanai nofik behu the Carmelite. Rabbi Yanai wore them in his ear and went out to a Carmelite. V'chalukim alav kol doro. His entire generation disagrees with him. We might ask on both of them, Bahatani Rami bar Yechezkel, v'hu shekoshur la We already had a qualification about this cotton that it has to be tied to the ear. So how could Rabbi Yanai, Rabbi Yochanan, how could they go out without having it tied? When it says, l'kashu, hadmadik, Depends how it's placed in, how tightly it is inserted into the ear. If it's tightly inserted into the ear, then we don't worry about it in terms of being tied down or falling out because it's pushed in tightly. If it's loose, then we do worry about it falling out, and therefore you would need it to be tied down. And the next thing in the Mishnah was, If he has a peppercorn or a globule of salt in her mouth, where it says, Pipel the Rechapet, she won the peppercorn for bad breath. Gal gal melech ledorshini. You can see in the orach, it's a two words. It's ledorshine, which is for teeth, for bad teeth. Koliashinayim. So it's used for toothaches, tooth decay. I think in their days, it was used to clean the teeth too, as well, that they used to use the salt 
So here you have what the usage of the peppercorn was and the salt. And any other item that she places into her mouth. Zangbila inami dirtsona. So Rashi says Zangbila is jinziru, ginger. And inami dirtsona, Rashi says, is inamon, is cinnamon. So these are items that she would go out with in her mouth. Discussed yesterday in the Tosafot what the issue is exactly. She's allowed to put them in her mouth prior to Shabbat. They come into Shabbat with them in her mouth. But if they fall out on Shabbat, she may not replace them and put them back into her mouth. First, Dayan Tosafot, Rav Porat, said it's because it looks like refuah. We would not permit you to do that. Tosafot rejects that understanding because he says if it really was for refuah, if something's already in process, we allow you to return it on Shabbat. So for instance, you had a bandage on your arm and it falls off, you can put it back on. So here too, if she already chewed it and it was in her mouth, if it fell out, she should be able to put it back in. So Tosafot gives the other reason, which Tosafot is consistent. We're going to see this in the upcoming Mishnayot as well. Problem is, we think she's going to carry it that way. She's trying to move it from one location to the other. So if she pops it in on Shabbat, we think that she's just trying to get this item to another location. She can't carry it. She sticks it in her mouth and walks across. It looks like she's trying to transport it rather than use it for her own purposes, which is for her bad breath, her toothache. Therefore, we demand that it put in before Shabbat. And if it falls out on Shabbat, we don't let you put it back in. Then we had the last thing in the Mishnah was the Shein Totevet, Shein Shel Zahav, the fake tooth or the golden tooth. Rebbe Matir, Echomim Mosrim. Rebbe says it's good. Echomim say, can't. I'm Rebbe Zerah. This we only say about a golden tooth. shall kiss if if we're talking about a silver tooth, mutar. Everybody says it's fine. Tiny nami ochi, we have a bright that supports that understanding. mutar. Everybody says if it's a silver tooth, that's okay. Shall zahav, Rebbe Matir, Vichachamim Usrim. A golden tooth, Rebbe says it's okay. Chachamim say that it's not okay, which would corroborate what we just saw from Rebbe Zera. That by silver, by silver tooth, it's not a problem. So now Rashi brings down two interpretations over here. Says, the first one is, why is silver okay? Because he says, It's the same color as the other teeth. Maybe. I don't know. It depends what the silver looks like and depends what your tooth looks like. But his suggestion is that a golden tooth would look different and that's what creates the problem over here. People are going to laugh at her. She's going to be embarrassed by having a golden tooth in there and she's going to pull it out because she doesn't want people to see it. By a silver tooth, she won't do that because close enough it blends in. But that's somewhat of a difficult explanation, both because of the perspective of is silver really the same color as the teeth, as well as some other issues here. And then that was Lashon Rabotai, Rashi says. Then he says, Vali Nira. This is what I think. Taima de Mishum de Chashiva. The same thing that we've seen with all the other jewelry. Gold is considered to be significant. And in being significant, we say this by all the other jewelry, what's she going to do? She's going to show it off to her friends. She's going to pull it out to show to her friends. So that's why Zahav is problematic. So therefore, if she has silver in there, that's not so expensive. That's not something that you would show off to someone else. So that's why over there, everybody says it's mutar. So if it's just something that is regular usage, just functioning as a tooth, nothing exciting... There, and even the Chachamim are going to agree that it's mutar. If it's something fancy, then it is upgraded to the equivalent of jewelry. And something that she would show off to her friends. And that's why there's a problem. So again, there's the Rebbeim of Rashi who think the issue here is blending in and making fun of the woman and she's going to pull it out because of embarrassment. And Rashi was saying it has to do with the value of the item and how much it looks like jewelry or something that she would show to others. Amar Abaye. Rabbi, Vir Rabbi Eliezer. 
Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, Kulu Sviru, they all believe, they all agree that something that is detrimental, an item you wouldn't be proud of, and would not be something to show off, then nobody carries that on Shabbat, because nobody's going to take that out to show to someone else. If it's something that, or the reason that you have it is because something wrong with you, then you're not going to go and show that to someone else, because you don't want anybody else to know about it. So we had some of this, Rabbi Ha Damran. Rabbi is from our Mishnah. Over here, Rabbi says that you can go out with a golden tooth in your mouth. The reason you can go out is because who wants to show off that they're missing a tooth and that they have to have the golden tooth in there? Yeah, it's nice, the golden tooth, but why do you want to show anybody else that your golden tooth is placing what should have been a real tooth? Rabbi Eliezer is the Tanya. Rabbi Eliezer puter bekovelet ubitzlochit shel platon. Rabbi says that we don't worry about the kovelet or the tzlochit shel platon because... Remember by the Tzolchit Platon, the reason that she wears it is because she's malodorous. And she wears the perfume bottle in order to be a deodorant of sorts. So she's not going to show to everybody else or show off the fact that she needs this in order to fix her smell. And that's why she won't show that off. And therefore, we're not going to worry about it. Over here, then we have the third opinion, which is Rabbi Shum ben Elazar de Tanya. Palamar Rabbi Shum ben Elazar, so again this Anun Zayin, that koshu lumata min anything that is below the hair cap, yotzabo, she can go out with it. Lamala min anything that's above the hair cap, ain't a yotzabo. And we saw this when they were discussing over there what exactly is the definition of the kabul, what's the definition of kabul. So there they bring this memra of Rabbi Shum ben Elazar, and it tells you that if it's under the hair cap, we don't worry about it because if she takes it out, she has to uncover her hair. And that's something that she wouldn't do because that would be gnaidlo. So we don't want anything under the hair cap, we don't worry about it. Above the hair cap, then she could take it out without exposing her hair. But then we do worry about it because she's likely to take it out and show it to other people because it's not going to affect her. But here we have these three opinions, all of which believe that when it's something that you don't show off, Rabbi about the golden tooth, and then we had Rabbi Eliezer about the kovelet and the tzolchicho platon, which are deodorants. For a woman who's malodorous, she's not going to show those off. And we had Rabbi Shimon Elazar says that if it's below the hair cap, again, she's not going to show it off because she's not going to uncover her hair. So these are the three of them have the same opinion. This is one of Rashi's arguments against his rebbeim and their explanation. He says this makes sense according to the way I'm explaining it. That the whole issue is showing off. And then Rabbi says, I don't worry about showing off in this case because it's something that is not considered to be positive. Whereas according to the rebbeim Rashi, it's all about the whole issue here is making fun of her. As that proof. What is being staying here? Even the Chachamim agree over here that she's not going to show it off because the reason that they think she's going to take it out is because they're making fun of her. The Rashi says, I don't think that their explanation works so well over here. And that's why he favors his explanation of what this golden tooth or the problem with the golden tooth is. Alright, next Mishnah. She can go out with a coin on an injury that is on the sole of the foot. Habanot katanot kitanot, the young girls, yotzot bechutin. Go out with strings in their pierced ears. Or little sticks that they put in their ears. The Rabiot can go out. Rashi explains here that Ri'ulot are the Arab women who go out with the entire head covered, except for their eyes that are visible. That's the head covering of the Arab women, and that's what he's speaking about. Still to today, you can see that. The Rambam says that Ri'ulot have, that they have bells that hang down from their tunics. Rashi over here quotes in the Mishnah here that they find this word, Rulot, Nishayahu, Peragimel. Shayahu, Peragimel, Rashi explains that it's the Arab headdress for the women 
where only one eye is exposed, not both eyes are exposed. But that's what's being discussed, some sort of head covering according to Rashi. It's being here, this re'ulot. Umadiot, those from media, prupot. They can go out with their, quote, buttoned up. They used to have, a, maybe it's a shawl of sorts that wrapped around, and then they used to button it on to keep it in place. Mishnah notes for us, this is v'chol adam. This is true about anybody. It's not unique to the Arab women or the women from media. Ella, They're just talking about what the normal way that people dress in those areas. Now again, we're talking about the Jewish women in those areas. We're talking about Jewish women in the Arab countries and the Jewish women in Madai. And since this is the way they dress normally, they gave them as the example for this item. But it would be true for everybody. It was the same thing we saw by the Ru'ev, by the shepherd. The shepherd wore the sock, but it's true if anybody wears the sock. It just happens to be that the shepherds are the most likely to wear such clothing. Perefet, alaevin, you're allowed to button onto a stone, vale goes, onto a nut, velamatzbean, onto a coin. So we know when you have these buttons or fasteners, you have a loop, and you have the loop has to grasp something, or have a fastener that holds it in place. So here you can use for the part that's attached to the clothing, right, the equivalent of what a button would look like, and have the loop wrap around one of these items, a stone, a nut, or a coin. As long as he doesn't button, starting on Shabbat, again, the Gemara will discuss what this qualification is. So now the Gemara asks, Matzinit, what is this tzinit that we're talking about, that they're putting the coin on? Batara. Batara means facing the ground, the sole of the foot. It's an injury on the sole of the foot. Umayish nasela. So why are you using a coin to wrap around, to put on top of this wound? Ilema, komide da'kusha, malilo. Anything that is hard is beneficial for it. Levelachaspa. Why are you using a coin? Use a shard of earthenware. That's much harder and protective. Basically, the suggestion here is, it's to protect the wound from getting caught on rocks, stones, anything else that would be out when you're walking, and it's simply acting as protective. If that's the case, use some other hard material. Why are you using a coin? Elamishum shuchta. Maybe it's because of the moisture that the coin pressed up against the wound generates moisture. Rashi suggests over here that for some reason the silver that was in the coins sweated, and that sweat is beneficial for the wound. For whatever reason, that moisture or sweat from the metal is beneficial. Then the avid tassel. Why are you making it a coin? Just make a plate of metal, some flat piece of metal. El mishum surta. Must be because, as Rashi says over here, the shape. Maybe it's the shape of the coin that's helpful, that it's circular. So the avid pulsa. If that's the case, then why don't you just carve out a circular piece of wood? And then you'll make the shape of a coin or you'll etch in the way the coin looks on it. So we have a replacement. For whatever reason, we have a replacement. So please explain to me. The answer is that all of these three things are beneficial for the wound. And therefore the coin, which carries all three of them, is what they use. It's good because it's protective, it's hard. It's good because it generates the moisture. And it's good because of the shape, that is, that round shape to it. And therefore, we use the coin because it has all of these properties, which all the other items only have one of the properties. Girls go out with strings in their ears. Shmuel did not allow his daughters to go out with strings in their ears. Did not let them sleep together. And he made for them mikvaot in the springtime. Umafze, 
He made for them mats in the fall. So now the Gemara is going to investigate each of these things that Avud the Shmuel did for his daughters. So obviously being his daughters, these are the sisters of Shmuel. Avud the Shmuel is one of the bridge generations between the Tanaim and Amoraim. Already, Rav and Shmuel are considered to be the first generation Amoraim, even though sometimes the Gemara classifies Rav as Tanahu Palig. But nevertheless, they're really considered to be the first generation. There are a number of people who sit, Moraim, Kwasai Tanaim, that sit in that in-between generation. Vod Shmuel is one of those individuals. He appears a number of times in Shas, as well as the daughters of Vod Shmuel. And the daughters of Shmuel appear a number of times in Shas, Mark Tubot, Ivamot. They show up a number of times with certain incidents and stories that transpire. Pigmar asked the first thing, why is it that it didn't allow them to go out with strings in their ears? What about our Mishnah? Mishnah says, says it's different. His daughters were going out with colored strings in their ears, and that's why he didn't let them go out. Because what are we worried about again? If they're colored strings... They're much more decorative. They're something that you would show off. So that's something you would pull out to show to your friends, and then you would end up carrying them. What we're talking about in our Mishnah are simple strings, or if it is a piece of wood, something simple where it's kept there to hold the hole from the pierced ear, but it's not considered to be fancy or jewelry that you'd show off to anybody. It's just there for its utility, for utilitarian purposes, not for tachshit, for jewelry. But when you go to the colored strings already, they're acting as jewelry as well. There we're afraid you're going to pull them out and show them off. Then the next thing is, lo ganian He didn't allow them to sleep together. So leima misayle the ravuna. Let us say that this helps the position of Ravuna. Dama Ravuna, Nashim HaMisololot Zubazu, women who, I'm not going to define the word now, Misololot Zubazu, Sulot Likuhuna. They are unable to marry a Kohen. Now, Rashi says over here, they are not able to marry the Kohen Gadol. Tosafot brings that as well, and he brings a second interpretation, we'll see in a second, that it was even a regular Kohen that they could not marry. Kumari rejects as well. Avodah Shmuel does not subscribe to Ravuna here. The reason he didn't want them to do this is so that they shouldn't get used to having another body next to them in bed. Because if they got used to that, then they didn't allow for a man to be there, or want a man to be there. And he didn't want them to get used to that, so they was protecting his daughters from such a thing. In the end, we reject Ravuna's explanation for why Abu Adishmol did this, but you still have Ravuna. So you have two things. You have Abu Adishmol was doing it just as a protective measure for his daughters. But you have Ravuna's statement, which is that the women may not sleep together because they are misololot, or these women who are misololot, and because they're misololot, that's going to cause problems for them, for the Kohen Gadol. So over here, Rashi explains that the problem here is that these women who sleep together, are active sexually together, and therefore there is some sort of reduction in their betulim. And there's a requirement for a Kohen Gadol to marry a bitula, marry a woman who is a virgin. And because of this, misololot, these two women that are together and active, that's going to cause their betulah to be reduced somehow. It's not a betulah as Rashi terms it. And therefore, they will be psvot for the Kohen Gadol. Now, in the Mesechet Yivamot, Rashi says over there, they're psvot the kuna because of Mishum Znut, that they're classified as being Zonot. And that's what Tosafot, you saw over here, said, that they're also psvot to a Kohen Hejot. Not just a Kohen Gadol, but a Kohen Hejot, because classified as a Zona, the restriction against marrying a Zona is not only for the Kohen Gadol, that's even for a Kohen Hejot. Most interesting 
explanation is brought by the Tosafot, Yivamot of Ayin Vav, Omer Aleph. Over there it says a misolot. Perish Rivan. Rivan explains, what is this misolot that these women are participating in? Matilot Shechvat Zerashiki Blumi Balehen. They are inseminating themselves from the Shechvat Zera that they got from their husbands. The Rivan suggests what's transpiring over here is artificial insemination. And that is the problem here, this artificial insemination. Tosfot rejects it, says, Velo Can't be. Because, he's called Targumara over here. How come it can't be in Argumara? Because the Gemara wants to compare the Aloha Ravuna to the Bnot, the daughters of Avod The daughters of Avod were not married yet. Shmuel's fear here is that they're going to get used to having someone in bed with them, therefore they're going to have a man in bed with them. But that implies that they were not married yet. If they're not married, then artificial insemination, that the way it's being explained by the Rivan, is obviously not the explanation. And then he says, And what Rashi says over there in Shabbat is also not right. The Psulot the Kohen Gadol. And when he says that the Psulot the Kohen Gadol, that's also wrong. One of the problems, and Tosafot raises it over here, is that Shmuel doesn't live when there's a Kohen Gadol. The answer is, and the way to explain it is that, okay, even though there's no Kohen Gadol, nevertheless, since they would have been Psulot the Kohen Gadol, that's an indication that this isn't a behavior that we would like to condone or we would encourage. But he says, based on the Gemara in Yivamot, and the way Rashi explains in Yivamot, that the behavior over here seems to result in her being classified as a zona. She's classified as a zona. She's not only psula for a Kohen Gadol, she's also psula for a Kohen Hejot. Now, Sifra brings down, You're not allowed to act like the Egyptians and like the Canaanites. And then they bring examples from that. They're talking about homosexuality. Man and man, woman and woman. And therefore it says, Don't follow those ways. So that could be the issue that's being raised here with women who are misululot. Together is this issue of the problem. That you're acting like they did. And in doing so, question of whether she's classified as a zona or not. But that would indicate that the problem here is a do-right-the level problem. There are other Rishonim, like the Ritva and the Mi'iri, who say that for sure we're not talking about a do-right-the level problem over here. The issue here is not znut. The issue here is simply pritsuta. It's behavior that is unacceptable, but that is a rabbinic imposition based on the spirit of the law from Mas Eretz Mitzrayim and Mas Eretz Kenan. So these individuals are acting in a way that we would not want them to. It's a pritsuta that is unnecessary and unbecoming. And that's why it's Asur over here. The Aloha, the Rambam, when he codifies this, the Aloha brings down that this is a problem because it's like Maise Eretz Mitzrayim. But on the other hand, the punishment for such a violation is Makat Mardut, which is rabbinic lashes. So it seems to be that it's an Iser de Oraita, but the punishment is only brought mid Rabbanan. The Locha, both the way the Rabbim codifies it in the Shulchan Aruch is, Nashim Amsolot Zubazu, Sur, not allowed to be done. Mimas Eretz Mitzrayim Shuzarno Olav. Because it's like my Seretz Mitzrayim. makat mardut So the way he formulates it is that it's not an Isr Lav Minatorah, it's an Isr Minatorah. She will not get Malkot for it, but we should give her Makot Madurt, which indicates a issue to Rabbanan. Just stop them from doing this because it's inappropriate behavior. What's most interesting is the Rivan, who suggests that this is artificial insemination, even though this interpretation is wrong. 
Nevertheless, it really opens up the discussion amongst the poskim about this issue of artificial insemination. Artificial insemination has issues from a number of stadim. One is the accumulating or the getting of the shikvat zera, which is how do you extract the semen from the man without it being a problem of whether it's masturbation, whether it's improper behavior. So how do you get that out? Is it permissible to do it in that manner to get the Sheikh Lazara? Today, they have medically other ways to do it or extract it, which would not involve that, which makes it a lot easier. But that's one number one question. The second question is, when the woman is inseminated, if it's not her husband's Sheikh Lazara, then what's the status of such a baby? Is the status of such a baby where the woman is carrying a foreign man's Zera, is that a problem? Is that a problem of Znut? Is that a problem of Mamzerut? And then, obviously, the last uh, question that would come up is being a surrogate mother. What's the status of the baby that's born? And who's classified as the halachic mother? So all these questions are raised by the poskim. It's not part of our sugi necessarily, but it's very interesting only because of this explanation of what this Nashim Misololot is, according to Ravuna. All right, so now the Gemara continues with what is actually a very difficult sugya. Abu Dishmol, He made the mikvaot in the springtime. This helps Rav's position. When it rains in Eretz Yisrael, Evidence of the rain in Eretz Yisrael is that the Euphrates swells. So the people in Bavel knew that it was raining in Eretz Yisrael because they saw the Euphrates swell. And because of that, they said, oh wow, our brothers in Eretz Yisrael are getting rain, and we can be excited for them, we're happy for them, because they need the rain in Eretz Yisrael. That's the way Rashi explains it. The Rebbein Utam rejects it. It's very interesting, the reason that he rejects it. He says, Bavel is east of Eretz Yisrael. Truthfully, it's northeast, but it is pretty far east. Even though in the Navi, it calls Bavel, that the bad will come from the north, it's mostly east, and so he's right in that way. He says, well, it's to the east, and I have a problem. All rivers flow east to west. Now, you come to North America, through the whole continent of America, there's something called the Continental Divide, which is the Continental Divide says that anything to east of the Continental Divide flows eastward, and a water body that's found west of the Continental Divide flows west. What's interesting is that the Palitos, or Ben Tam, who lives in France, is saying all our rivers flow to the west. So it must be that rivers flow westward. I'm not sure where the Continental Divide is for... Europe, or for Asia, but it really depends on what you define as an ocean to determine. But there is such a concept both in Europe and Asia, and it's not so simple to extrapolate the fact that in France, all the waters flow to the west, that that would necessarily be true when you're talking about the Prat. But he's making an assumption that because his rivers flow west, that the ones in Israel also have to flow westward. I'm not sure whether it's right or not. But it's an interesting assumption because it doesn't necessarily have to be true. It's not always true just because the rivers here flow that way means the rivers somewhere else would flow that way. What's more interesting because his question is something that seems to be really based on fact, based on something that is scientific in nature, I'll call it. But his answer is more interesting. He says, The Euphrates backed up and reversed. It says because it rained so much in Israel, there wasn't, I guess, the drainage necessary to allow the Prat to drain towards Eretz Yisrael. And so because of that, the Prat backed up. His answer is something less scientific, which is that there's going to be a backup in the Euphrates because of the rain in Eretz Yisrael. Not because the water 
the rainwater from Eretz Yisrael flows to Bavel, but rather because of the rain in Eretz Yisrael, that's where the Euphrates would drain. And because of that, it backs up when there's so much water in Eretz Yisrael. It's an interesting answer, problematic. There's no connection necessarily between them. It doesn't seem so plausible that it would back up so badly from the rain in Eretz Yisrael. But both interesting. That's Rashi and Tosafot, the way they explain the problem here. Now, what is the issue? Why are they worried about this rainwater? They're worried about the rainwater, so that the rain will not exceed the flowing water. This comes to a din in mikveh. There are two ways to become tahor when one enters a body of water. There's something called mikveh, and there's something called mayan or mayim chayim. Mikveh is, as everybody agrees, is a stationary body of water. A stationary body of water that's encapsulated and closed, that water has has to derive from a source that is either a flowing source or something that was rain. Rainwater is sufficient. You can't go and fill that by what they call mayim shuvim, drawing. You can't go draw water, pour it into a pit, and call that a mikveh. Mikveh has to either be filled by rainwater or filled by the river water. That's fine. Flowing water is fine. As long as you direct it off the river and put it into a closed area where the water is standing water and not flowing. Right, so the problem is the Mayim Shuvim in between. They put into a Kli in between, then it loses its status. Because the way the Torah describes the Mikveh is that it's a body of water in the ground. And so part of it is that the water should always remain in a Tahor state. Once it's Mayim Shuvim, once it goes into a Kli, then the water is already, first of all, not attached to the Karka anymore, not attached to the ground. And it's also entered into a Kli that can possibly come to me. So the only way to have the water flow is through, number one, something that is not a Kli, and something that's Mechubar the Karka. So the way they do it today is that they have collection vessels for the rain that flow through a pipe that has, that's first of all embedded, attached to the ground, that's considered mechubar the karka, and it has no turns in it or areas where the water can collect. It has, it forces the water to flow all to all times, so there's no point of collection in it. That's a separate issue by mikvot, is that they collect the rainwater in the bore. Now that's hard to get. You can't get that all the time. But there's a way through what's called a process called nishika, which is that if you have a 40 sa'ah of rainwater, and then you fill an entire mikveh with tap water, if you connect between them, if you open up between them, plug, and the waters join, when they nishika, when they touch or they kiss, that makes the, all the water to be considered one body of water. And once you have one 40 sa'ah in a mikveh, nishika, and they touch, the entire the mikveh. So what they do is they keep the bore that has the water in it, the rainwater in it, so that it doesn't get dirty and it doesn't get ruined. Then they fill the mikveh itself with regular tap water. You actually usually do it through water from the tap that flows onto a pipe and is mashuk into it to get rid of other problems with maim shuvim. Then they do nishika, which makes the mikveh tahor, close it back up. Then people use the mikveh, it gets dirty, and you want to clean it, you want to drain it, you can drain it, fill it again, and you still have the rainwater that's in the bore. That's why they do it that way. And the second way to be tahor is what we call maim chayim, through a live spring, live flowing water. Over there, the water has to be coming from a mayan, coming from a spring, and the water, you dip into the live water. Certain tumult, like a zav, require mayim chayim, require live flowing water from a river, from a mayan, from a spring. Over here, what the fear was, what we're seeing here, is that you have rainwater that's coming down. The rainwater now is joining the river's flow. The river's origination or source is a spring. So the water was classified as being spring water, and now I have on top of that this rainwater that is accumulating, and now when the river is flowing down, I have a combination of rainwater and flowing water. Now rainwater does not work for my Chaim. It's not considered to be live flowing water. So if I want to go to a mikveh, a mikveh, rainwater and live water, flowing water are both good sources. 
As long as the mikvah is made on the side and it makes the water stationary. It can't be flowing when you go in there, it's stationary. For Mayim Chaim, which works, even if someone has to go to a regular mikveh, they can go to Mayim Chaim, they can go to a live body of water that's sourced from a Mayan. Go in there, that's assuming that the water is from the Mayan. The problem now is if it rains a lot. If it rains a lot, the water that's flowing from this river is a combination of rainwater and spring water. If you go in there and go to the... Okay, I agree with you. It's going to be a problem throughout the whole subject here, and your question's a fair question. I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. They separated between waters that emerged from below and waters that emerged from above. The rainwater was different than spring water, even though we know that the water table's filled and that the spring water is rainwater that's accumulated and then comes up through a spring. Despite that fact, we're going to go with their assumption, which is that the two are separate. It's fair. I think that you would have to say something like that. That we're talking in the scientific description. There's a logic description. A logic defines water from the ground differently than from the sky, even though, from a scientific sense, they both source from the same place, which is the water from the rain. But they have a logic definitions that are different. The Gemara in Bechorot Nunhei is much more extensive discussions there, and it's clear that their understanding was very difficult. And we're going to see pieces of that brought in over here. But for now, we're just going to assume and work with their definitions. Ah, so that's what happens here. The daughters of Avodah Shmuel used to go to the mikveh in the river. When they go to the mikveh in the river, the river is a flowing water, flowing body of water. So that means they're not using the water as mikveh, they're using the water as ma'im chayim, live flowing water. So by live flowing water, it's okay if the water that's flowing is live water that came from a mayan. If the water that's flowing in the river is rainwater, rainwater does not function that way. The only way to use rainwater is to bring it to a standing place, to bring it into a mikveh. So in the springtime, when you have a lot of rain, the accumulation of the rain from the winter time and the, the river swells because of the rainwater, the rainwater is going to exceed the live flowing water. So if they go to dip in the mikveh in the springtime, then they're going to have a problem because it's mostly rainwater that's going down in the, the river. And that means rainwater does not work for Mayim Chaim to go into the mikveh. Mayim Chaim. So what did he do? He built the mikvot. He built them little areas next to the river and he channeled the water off the river into those standing pits. So he did use the water as a mikveh, which is fine, as long as it's standing water. But to use it as live flowing water, that he did not allow. So that's why he had them have mikvot but when it came to Yom Tishrei, the end of the summertime, there there's no rainwater. So everything that's in the river is live water. So over there, he would let them go into the river and dip in the mikveh. So they had the mikvah for the springtime where the rainwater would exceed the live flowing water from the Mayan. And in the fall time, he'd let them go in the river because the only source of water then was the Mayan, was the spring water. And that you can do by going into a river. You don't need it to accumulate into a standing body. Now, get to the Allah. Rabbeinu Tam has a very interesting sheet of... All right. Upligi de Shmuel. Now, the Gemara says that this subscribes to what Rav said because Rav says the reason a river swells is because of the rain. So the river swelling because of the rain means that now I have a problem that I have too much rainwater that's going to cause me a problem for dipping into the river for Mayim Chaim. But that argues in Shmuel, again, in Bechorot Nunhei, their discussion is much more extensive. But Shmuel says, A river swells from its underground sources. The reason that the river swells is not because of the rain, but rather because the underground springs or the water from the table underneath rises. And that's what causes the river to swell. Upligi didei adididei. And this Shmuel statement here argues on another statement of Shmuel, which is, 
Shmuel says that flowing water only works as a mikveh, meaning for Mayim Chaim, when you use it in the Euphrates, in the fall time. So basically what he's saying is exactly what his father said, which is that in the fall time you can use the prop Euphrates because there's no rainwater in there. But Shmuel doesn't believe there's rainwater in the rivers. When the rivers swell in the springtime, Shmuel says it doesn't come from the rain, it comes from underneath. How could it be over here that he's saying that the prat is problematic in the springtime? It should be fine in the springtime. Why is there more water? Because flowing up from underneath, that's the same water that's sourcing the river all the way along. So that's a Stiran Shmuel. So Safot asks, he says, wait a minute. We know that when it rains, the river swells. It's not even a question. We can look, we can watch. You can do, we can make, we can do tests and we can watch the river swell every time it rains. It's clear that the rain is causing the river to swell. How can Shmuel say such a thing? So he quotes another member of Chazal that says that for every drop of water that comes down from above, two drops of water from underneath come to greet it. When it rains, not only does it rain from above, but it rains from below. That there's water that comes out from below. Now again, this goes back to Fred, what you said before. Well, the reason that happens is because the rain fills the water table and then there's more water that comes up from below. So again, from a scientific standpoint, it's the rain that's causing the swelling of the river. But nevertheless, like Roni was suggesting, maybe from a logic standpoint, we're going to look at the rain that sources from underneath. Then from above, is different. So that's the basic picture of what's happening over here. There is a machloket rashi in Tosafot, brought in Bechorot, as to how flowing water and the mikveh function. Everybody agrees that mikveh only functions with standing water. And you can source the water from a live spring, you can source it from rainwater. Now when it comes to live, mayim chayim, comes to Mayan water, the question is, can it function also as a mikveh? So the Torah Kwanim brings down that the mikveh has to be stationary, and Zochalim only works, Mayim Chaim only works when it's flowing. So from that, Rashi suggests that to be qualified as Mayim Chaim, it has to be flowing. It's not classified as Mayim Chaim when it's not flowing. So suppose suggests that's not true. Mayim Chaim has to do with the source, not with the fact that it's flowing. So Tosfut says you can still have Mayim Chayim when it's Beshboren, when it gathers together. You have a spring that has a pool near it, that's still classified as Mayim Chayim according to Tosafot. According to Rashi, that it would not be because it's gathered together, that's not considered as Mayim Chayim. That's one machok between them. The other one is the Matze. He used to make them mats. Why did Avod Shmuel make mats for his daughters, the Yomei de Tishrei? In the fall time. Rashi claims both here and in Bechorod, Nida, the other places, is because the rivers were low, and therefore their feet would sink into the mud at the base of the river. And they would have a chatzitza, because their feet would be submerged in the mud at the bottom of the river, and that would be a problem for them going to the mikveh. So you used to make the mats put down, and the mats would allow them to go in without their feet sinking into the river. That's Rashi's explanation. The Rain of Time rejects it, and says, no, the reason for the mats was actually they were screens. They were for tzniyut, so that they could go into the water. So in the fall time, when their water is low, and people are around the rivers all the time because there's not a lot of water there. There are people present. And the fear is that the women will be afraid to go to the mikveh because there are other people around so they'll go quickly and they won't do it properly. So he built them private areas by putting up screens that they can go into the mikveh, into the river without being visible or worrying about someone seeing them. He says for the same reason you can't go to the mikveh by the port. By the Namal, even though it's the ocean, which would function as a mikveh, can't go there because there are people present. People being present, the woman's fearful to go in properly because she wants to get out quickly. So it has to be done in a place where there's no fear in terms of mikveh. So he says that these screens are done for tzniyut, not for chatzitza. The last thing is the Rabbeinu Tam, which is the Alocha. And this Rabbeinu Tam says something which is unusual and creates some sort of controversy. Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Tam, Hilchata Kavate Dishmuel. 
The locha is like Shmuel here. Shmuel who says that the rivers swell from underneath. That, and in Bechorot, the Tosa says it more explicitly, that means that he rejects Rav, he rejects the father of Shmuel, and he rejects Shmuel's other statement. So you have three statements that argue on this position of Shmuel that a river swells from underneath. We had Rav who says the river swells from the rain. We have both Avud and Shmuel and Shmuel who both say that going to the mikveh in the river in the springtime is problematic because of the rainwater. And yet, the Rebbeinu Tam says the locha is like Shmuel, that the water swells from underneath. So he rejects all all the other opinions and passing like Shmuel. Okay, but the more important thing is what Tosfut says at the end. He says, because of this Rabbeinu Tam, for this reason, our women go into the rivers as a mikveh, even if they've swelled significantly. Even if the river swells significantly, our women go in these rivers because it's coming from underneath. It's not the problem of the rainwater. So there's so much on this Rabbeinu Tam to go to the mikveh and rivers that have swelled, which is unbelievable brought down the halacha, is that they shouldn't go into such rivers. The Ramah does bring that in a situation where there's no other choice, there is a kula opinion, that of the Rebbeinu Tam, which you can be somechalav, that you can rely on in order to use when you have a river that has swelled. The Tosafot over here says, why don't we say a principle that we have other places, which is kama kama batil, that as something falls in, a smaller object falls into a larger pool of area, that as it goes in, each drop is batel. Here you have a flowing river. As the raindrops go in, they should be batel to the river. And then they are nullified, and they become a part of the river now, and there's no rain left. Why don't we say that? This is a machloket rashi and tosafot in a number of places. In Avodah Zorah is one of the main areas where they argue about this is. How long do you say, kama kama batel? If you say each drop that comes in is batel, can you say that when the amount of drops, the rain that comes in now exceeds the amount that was there before? Rashi seems to say it can go on forever. Kama kama batel is every drop that comes in continues to be nullified and it becomes a part and parcel of the original item and the next drop that comes never right, it never accumulates so suppose it says it's only true until you cross over some threshold whether the threshold is rove majority or is the threshold notein tam whatever that threshold is once you reach that threshold we call what's called it's called that it comes back to life that which is batel and it's not batel anymore and that's why he says over here, this rain is not patel to the river, because eventually what happens is that the rainwater exceeds the flow of the river. It's above 50%. Once it reaches above 50%, it's no longer patel. And that's why we have a problem of the rainwater in the river, because it's the source of this river flow now is more than 50% from rainwater. And therefore it has a classification of rainwater and not as a flowing mayan. Oh, so that's a good question. So it talks about here, discuss, I don't know if it's here, and, and, and Nido and Bechorot discusses the fact that today we only think of going to the mikvah because of marriage and marital relations. But Nido has a secondary aspect to it, which is not only she has surah to her husband, she's also tmeah. And so they need to go to the mikvah to become teorim. Nothing to do with marital relations. So in their day, young girls went to the mikvah, not because they were getting married, not because of marital relations, but simply because they needed them to be teorim. Alright, so now the next piece in the Mishnah, which is Perefet al You're allowed to button onto the stone. Vamart Reisha Perefet. So wait a minute. In the Reisha you say you can do it, and then you say you can't do it. So Rabbi you have to divide up the Mishnah. The Mishnah gave you three examples of buttons. So in the first part of the Mishnah where it says you're allowed to do it, that's referring to the Evan and the Egos, to the stone and the nut. The part in the end of the Mishnah says that the Chatkila you cannot button, that is on the coin. The difference being that a stone you can designate to be used on Shabbat, and it loses its shame muksa when you designate it to be used. A coin, you can never take away its status as muksa unless it's no longer a going currency. And as long as it's no longer used for its value, then you can make it into something decorative. But if it's used as a coin, you can't just say, because I'm using it as a button, now it's no longer a coin. It's still a coin. 
And that's what the problem is with button ink onto the coin. So boy abaye, boy is queried. Isha mau shutarim v'tifrof alaygos. What happens if a woman needs to carry a nut for a child through the Rishut Rabim? Can she use it as a button or a fastener for her shawl? So can't she do this? Lo tzilev nakatan b'shabat. Tibay l'man damar marimim. Tibay l'man damar dey marimim. Machloket later on the Masefta, whether you're allowed to do these types of tricks in order to move things. There it's talking about, in terms of a sreif, a house that's on fire, you're only allowed to take out a certain amount of items. Are you allowed to put on ten shirts to take out your shirts? Because you're allowed to wear whatever you can wear out is permissible. Do we say you can put on ten shirts, which is marimim, you're allowed to do this to get the shirts out? Or, we say no, that you're restricted and you can only take out one shirt, you can wear what you normally wear. So that's what Mara says, it's a question according to both of those opinions. Dubai the mandamar marimim. According to what it says, you can dress with as many pieces of clothing as you want. So that's Bidileiko. That's when we're talking about a fire. If we don't permit him there, he's going to extinguish the fire. If we don't let him take the stuff out, he's going to put out the fire, which is an Isha and Shabbat. So we permit him to do it in an unusual manner so that he doesn't come to extinguish the fire. Over here, we say don't do it. She's just not going to carry the nut for her son. So that we're not worried about. So maybe over there he permits it, but over here he would not permit it. Even according to one who says over there, you're not allowed to do these tricks. That's v'deleiko. Hotom That's the normal way to carry out begadim. Because people who sell clothing, they wear like four or five begadim to carry them to the shuk. People wear multiple layers, and that's a normal way to take things out. People don't carry nuts by using them as buttons or fasteners. That's not the normal way to move them from place to place. Same as Shapirdami. Maybe over here, it would be permissible. Teiku. We leave that as unresolved. Right now, I just quickly do the Mishnah, only because there's a Tosafot here that's very, very interesting, which has to do with canes on Shabbat, whether you're allowed to go out with a cane on Shabbat. So it says here, Akita Yotzei Bikav Shalom. A amputee can go out with his prosthetic. That's what Mayor says, Rabbi Yossi Oser. Rabbi Yossi says that it's problematic. Why it's problematic? Rashi says it's a question of Manal. Is it considered a shoe or not considered a shoe? His prosthetic, do we look at that as an item now that walks on the ground? And we classify that as being a minau? Or are we not classified as being a minau? Tosafot and some of the other Rishonim, for reasons not to do with our Gemara, suggest that the, the argument here about the prosthetic is that it's really not used to walk on. He walks on a cane, he walks on something else. The kav is simply for cosmetic reasons. Either covers up the stump or allows him to sometimes lean on it but then it's not used as the vehicle for to allow him to walk. Then we move on to the next thing, which is, if the prosthetic has an area which has an insertion where in which he puts the stump of his leg, but in there he puts in cloths or soft items in order to protect his stump when it goes into the prosthetic, then it's tamay, because then it has what's called the bait kibul, as a place where it accepts the leg, and a bait kibul makes it into a kli, a kli that now has other items. If it was just his leg that was filling it in, that would not be problematic. But here it's more than just his leg that's filling it in. He's also putting other objects in there to make it soft. And when he does that, it just makes it a bait kibul. And being a bait kibul, that's problem for Tuma. Then the Mishnah continues with other items that he uses. He says, Smukot shelo, Tmeim Midras. The smukot of this individual are Tamei, Midras, which means that he's sitting them or laying on them. And you're allowed to go out with them on Shabbat. So you can see here, these are items that he places on his legs. He's missing his feet, he's missing it. So he places them on his shins 
or whatever remains of his legs. Now, even though they're covering his legs, they're not classified as shoes because the laparosh raglohen. They're not at the end of his foot. They're along the leg itself because he's missing both legs and he has to drag his legs along the ground. So he's wearing these shin guards, these thigh guards, but they're not at the stump or at the end of the leg, and therefore they're not classified as shoes, but rather as a malbush or a tafshit. He's allowed to go out with them on Shabbat. They store mikabel to mat midras because he sits on them. He actually puts his body on them. And you're allowed to go into the azarab with them because they're not classified as shoes like regular people consider them shoes. These are extensions of his leg now. They're the remainder of his feet. In that sense, they're protecting his legs, they're not shoes, and everything can go in the Azarah. You say this mukhot. The predecessor to the wheelchair. If he has a seat that he straps himself onto, that seat is Tmei Midras. Vein Yotzim Ben Shabbat. You're not allowed to go out with that on Shabbat. Vein Yotzim Ben Bazarah. So this seat that he has his body on, he can't go out with it on Shabbat, and he can't go into the Azarah, because this is functioning more like shoes, because these are really protecting him from the ground. They're not the extension of his legs. They're not acting as his legs now. That's the kisei. Kisei is the seat that he straps himself out of. The smuchot are the crutches that he pushes down on the ground to swing the chair underneath him. So he has some of these solid bricks that he pushes down on the ground that give him some height. He pushes down on them, swings his body forward with the kisei, the seat that's under him, and then he keeps moving himself forward in that manner. Kisei and the smuchot are tmei midras. He lays on them. He rests on them. You can't go out on Shabbat, because those are classified like shoes. Look to me in Torim. Masks are considered to be Torim. You can't go out with them on Shabbat. But the interesting here is, Tosafot brings down and says, are you allowed to go out, based on our Mishnah, that you're allowed to go out with certain items here on Shabbat, are you allowed to go out with a cane on Shabbat? Tosafot creates a distinction, and he says, if the item is there, and the person would not be functional without the item, that means... That if he didn't have it, he wouldn't be able to walk at all. Then that item is permissible on Shabbat and becomes a part of his malbush. If it's an item that assists him in walking or moving about, if that item would fall away, he'd still with difficulty be able to move around, then that is not considered to be clothing. So over here, Tosco points out, by the prosthetic, according to Rashi, if he's missing the prosthetic, he can't walk anymore. He can't move anymore. Or, according to Tosafot, where he thinks he has a cane that's doing the major work for him in terms of leaning, prosthetic is simply cosmetic, then that cane also becomes something that he can't walk without. That's why he's allowed to go out with the Shabbat, because that's what makes it possible for him to walk. Without it, he wouldn't be able to move. Now, the Kisein Smuchot make it easier for him to walk, but if he lost one of them, he'd still be able to move himself around the same way he moves himself around with the Kisein Smuchot. Just be going a little slower, it would be difficult. When the person has that prosthetic, if it falls away or it drops, he can't move anymore. So he's not going to carry it or shoot through a beam, and it's clear that it's part of his malbush. He says the same thing with a cane. If the person can walk without the cane, but the cane assists him, then that's problematic, because if he carried the cane, then he'd still be able to walk, even though it's with difficulty. If the only way he can walk is with the crutches or the cane, then that's considered part of his malbush, and he won't leave them. He won't put them down, he won't carry them, because the only way he can move is with these items, and so then we don't worry about it. So he makes such a distinction. Shochan, Aruch, and the Ruach, the Paskin in general, say that you should avoid carrying these things around, but if they're absolutely necessary and there's no other way for the person to function or move, then in Ochanami, that we do permit a person to go out with that. A blind person going out with a cane, over there, the Sakalocha that's brought down is that they may not go out with a cane because they can't function without it. It just helps them and eases their movement. There are many poskim who believe that that's only true when they're in an area that they know very well. But once they move out into areas that they don't know well, they wouldn't be able to function without the cane, and therefore they would be permitted to go out with their cane on Shabbat because that makes them able to move. And they won't move without the cane. They're not going to leave the cane anywhere because they can move without it. 
So that's a distinction that Tosafot makes. Brought down the halachot. If it comes to a point where a person can't move without these items, then it would be permissible to move with these items, even though they're not attached to him, even though they're not, he's not wearing them. But because they become a part and parcel of his body, in the sense that he can't move without them, he's not going to carry them. The only way for him to move is to actually use these items. That would be permissible if it's necessary on Shabbat. It will stop here.